The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show tonight, everyone. We've got a good one for you. We're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Sharon Peka. Um, she's a, uh, a paranormal investigator who has actually organized what would be considered the first paranormal investigation for the deaf. But she's also a student of, a researcher of, and a storyteller of vampires, cemeteries, dark tourism, and other spooky topics. So we're going to get into a lot of things here tonight with uh, Dr. Sharon Peka. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, I encourage you to visit us on YouTube as well. If you subscribe to the YouTube channel, and it's free to do that, there's no obligation and no fee, nothing. But if you do it, you're going to uh, have access and notifications of our live stream. That's, you know, when we're doing the show live. And also uh, any bonus content. Not all of the bonus content that shows up on YouTube ends up in the podcast stream. It's all great to listen to the program, whether it's podcast or YouTube, doesn't matter. However, having a, having both, access to both and checking both is very, very advantageous because there's material on one that's not on the other. So, uh, again, that's um, YouTube is just search for JV Johnson. When you find the channel, just subscribe. It's really simple to do that. And conversely, if you're used to watching on YouTube and listening on YouTube, um, check out any of your major podcast distribution points. And uh, you'll find Beyond Reality Paranormal there. And when you do, subscribe as a podcast. That way it downloads automatically to your smartphone or other device. And it's great for listening in the car or whatever, whatever it happens to be. So a lot of great ways to listen to the show. We appreciate you uh, participating. And one final thing I'll say before we take a break and get our guest on the line is that we are, um, because we've changed the format of the program and we are no longer on commercial radio, therefore we're not running commercial uh advertising as uh, our radio listeners were used to hearing YouTube, not so much, but radio listeners were used to hearing that uh, we are looking for other ways to support the program. We're looking for sponsors and that's going along really, really well. However, we do have a Patreon page too, for listener support. If you go to Patreon and just type in Joha, J O H A W, you'll find our Patreon page. It's a great way to support the show and help us uh, do what we do. And also, if you're listening as a podcast, in the description of the podcast, you'll see a link that says something like support the podcast or support this podcast. And if you click on that, you'll be taken to a place where you can do just that. So a couple ways you can support us. We appreciate it, of course. Um, you know, Slick Eddie does, Orion does, everybody appreciates it and helps us uh, keep things rolling along here. All right, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll bring in our guest. Again, tonight we're talking with Dr. Sharon Peka. We're going to talk about vampires cemeteries, dark tourism, and other spooky topics tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Beyond Reality Paranormal. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. I'm going to ask that you support this program. The easiest way to do that, by the way, is if you're listening as a podcast, you just open up the description of the episode and you scroll down to the bottom. And at the bottom, there is a link that says support this podcast. If you click on that, you'll be taken to a page that gives you a couple of options for supporting the show. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us bring great programs to you every week, and we look forward to continuing to do that. And if you're enjoying the program on YouTube, there's another way you can support the show. Just go to the description. You'll see a link to a Patreon page. It's Joha, J-O-H-A-W. And if you go to the Patreon page, you'll be able to pledge an amount to help support the show as well. Once again, thanks for your support. Thank you for listening 
listening, please share it with your friends. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tonight, we're talking with Dr. Sharon Peka, who is a professor and a speaker. We're talking about a lot of things, including vampires, cemeteries, dark tourism, other spooky topics, including the fact that she's organized the first paranormal investigation for the death. Uh, Sharon, welcome to Beyond Reality. Great to have you on tonight. Thanks, JV. So tell me this. How does a Ph.D., in English education, find themselves involved in all of these spooky topics? Oh, <laughs> well, first you have to have tenure and probably be a full <laughs> professor. I should probably point that out. Um, oh, so it's, that's kind of a loaded question. And I, I don't know if I'm actually the first uh, set up paranormal investigation for the deaf. There's actually deaf people out there doing it. But at Gallaudet, it was the first one that we did. So I, I kind of want to clarify that. Okay. Um, for me, I grew up with, like, a dad who was really into science fiction, and he wanted to be this first man on Mars. Um, my mom's really into ghost hunting. She's, you know, very obsessed with Bigfoot. She takes this stuff very seriously. So I grew up in that um, environment where that was very normal, um, you know, grew up on old Twilight Zones and whatnot. So going into, you know, academics, I was an English and religious studies major, undergrad. Um, I got involved with deaf education because I have Meniere's disease, which is an inner ear disorder that causes um, deafness um, in many cases. So I was told at some point, like, you're probably going to lose your hearing. Um, inevitably, we all do, usually at a later age. So my mom and I started taking a sign language class, and it ended up being American Sign Language. I was introduced to Gallaudet. Um, I clearly like to talk to people, so it became this, oh, it's a new community I can chat with. Um, and people seemed really cool, so I got involved with that. Then went on for English Ed. I liked stories, literature, but I've always sort of been interested in history, but not like book history. Um, so what we call public history, which is history for the masses. It's for people who not so interested in your common, you know, like high school course or college course where you learn a bunch of, you know, facts and, you know, dates, but more about like what's the history of the pen or here's, you know, history of witches. Um, I was always sort of fascinated by that. And um, from there I went, I actually um, had been at Gallaudet for 10 years. What do you do when you're an academic professor who's tenured full professor? Well, you go back and get another degree. So I took um, courses and finished a graduate program on public history, which sort of set me up to be a little bit more um, have more, more credentials. I used to say, like, I had the street cred about, uh, you know, teaching about vampires or teaching about cemeteries, but I didn't really have a credential to say what is, you know, the history behind it. So now I do. I'm trying to find another way <laughs> to describe uh, what you've uh, defined as public history. Would it be considered okay. like uh, maybe even, and, and I hate to use this term because everybody thinks superheroes, but like a pop culture history, maybe even uh, an urban history? legend, not legend, but urban history, 
Uh, does it kind of fall into anything like that? Well, public history itself is actually described as history that's beyond the walls of a traditional classroom. Okay. So if you go to like a battlefield or a museum, there's going to be some sort of like history, like historical knowledge connected to it. You can think about like archives. Um, so if there was a, um, a big company and they have their history. So I think about like my grandfather, he was, um, he had like a Venetian blind shop. So if his business had been, you know, this huge thing that was really popular, then he would have ended up with like a history of his business. So that um, genealogist, that okay. sort of falls into public history. Yeah, that starts to make make a little more sense to me. Now, tell me a little more about your parents, because I'm really intrigued <laughs> by the fact that your father was somebody who, you know, quote unquote, wanted to be the first man on Mars kind of thing. <laughs> was he in a profession that that, uh, you know, made him pay attention to those things or was this his outside of his professional world pursuits like interests? Um, outside of it um he yes i was he was in the air force so you know uh-huh. i don't wanted to go to mars no um no but <laughs> he was in a life for a military so oh, wow. um but he was i you know i think it was just of the time period like he's in his like early 80s now and for him he grew up where it was you know he read comic books and he just had access to uh, you know, Tales of the Crypt and all of these nice. things that, you know, that came back again in the 80s when I was a kid. Um, but he he just loved that. And so, I you know, we grew up, I grew up in the country, like a rural area. There wasn't like, you know, any stoplights or, um, you know, street lights out there. So as a kid, my dad worked night shift, um, which made him a little bit creepy. Sure. And he worked on old bank computers. So he actually was an engineer and fixed, like, you know, a bank machine, like for, you know, sorting checks. Um, actually with the Federal Reserve, so it's sort of, you know, kind of, maybe that's a little spooky there too. But um, So, you know, he actually could fix the machines. So for me, like, Dad was magic because overnight he was gone. And when, at the time when I was a kid, like, computers aren't what they were. I mean, they at that point, they weren't like what they are now. Right, so right. if I told my friends, like, oh, my dad works on computers, they're like, what's that? Yeah. Um, so my dad used to joke all the time. He used to say, like, he was a vampire. Um, and <laughs> he also used to drink, like, tomato juice out of this glass jar without any <laughs> label, and it was always a little bit creepy. So I just kind of grew up with this dad who was really fun, and when I'd have sleepovers, um, he would be the one that would, like, walk outside and, like, scratch down the screen window and, you know, make my friends scream. He just was fun. Um, loved Halloween, had these big Halloween parties. So as a kid, I thought, when I grow up, I'm going to get to attend these. And, of course, when you grow up, your parents stop having the great big parties because now the kids are there. So. Right. And and you you've said two things about your mom that are that struck me as well. One is she loves the the idea or the the uh, activity of ghost hunting, and the other was she was into Bigfoot. So has she has she done any ghost hunting? Or did she do that as a when you were a child? And um, did she ever go out and look for Bigfoot? Uh, no. And it, so my mom is almost she's in her late seventies. She sort of grew up in this generation, I think, where women weren't, I mean, you know, she talks about women couldn't even wear pants. So only when I started going to conferences as, you know, a college professor, like, hey, why don't you come with me? Um, 
did we start doing things where we would go and do ghost hunting? So I think the big one for us was we went out to, um, I think it was 2017, somewhere around there. Um, we went out to Eureka Springs to stay at the Crescent Hotel. Oh, nice. So I was, um, I saw it like in a magazine like years ago as, you know, this big gothic, you know, vacation display. And I was like, that's cool. I'm going to go there. But Eureka Springs is kind of, I mean, we're in Richmond, Virginia, so it's really like if you flew there, you're still going to drive a long ways. So I thought this would be a really fun road trip, Um, you know, 19 hours with my mom, woohoo! But we did stop like halfway, and, uh, you know, she's, you know, totally game. So Eureka Springs, the whole town is basically like one big haunted town in some ways, and everyone there sort of believes in the paranormal, they're Jobs are based on tourism that's, you know, kind of, you know, retells ghost stories, emphasizes, like, hauntings. So for us, it was just a lot of fun because everything was focused on that. We stayed at the Crescent Hotel, which has this dark history, which, um, you know, originally it was like a resort for the rich and famous, which, you know, that quickly ended and uh, became a girls' college. Um, And then, like, in the 19, I think it was, like, 1937, this guy named Norman Baker, who was, you know, like a, a fake doctor. So he, you know, told people, like, I'm this doctor and I have a cure for cancer. Right, and all right. these patients came out because they believed in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then, like, and I remember on the tour, they were talking about how, I mean, it was, they have a big natural spring in Eureka Springs. So that's, you know, where the name is from and why people would actually go out to the resort. But so this, you know, Baker actually that was part of his cure, but he also would like grind up watermelon seeds, which, you know, then he would inject in these patients. And of course it did nothing. Um, He also believed that you should be social. So he took down all the walls, but if people were in such pain from their cancer and, you know, just so much agony that they couldn't sort of, you know, um, keep it to themselves if they weren't, you know, if they're screaming in the halls, he would put them in this area that was totally soundproof. And, you know, of course, my mom and I are on, you know, we're on this little, like, history tour um, of, you know, ghosts in this hotel when we find out, oh, the room that we're staying in was actually part of the soundproof location. So my mom was thrilled, um, not in a sick way because people were suffering, but just because she was like, paranormal activity, this is great. Um, so, you know, she's, she's done things like that with me where we go on, you know, individual things, but I think at the point where she really had the freedom to do it, she kind of considered herself a little bit too old, but, um, or she's going to listen to this and probably yell at me saying any of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, that the story of Dr. Baker, um, it's one I've heard before and it's rather notorious, uh, but, you know, it reminds me that we can talk about ghosts and we can talk about vampires, but in real in reality, people are scarier than all that. You know, there are people oh, that can absolutely. be scarier than any of these things we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you had the perfect uh, soup, if you will, in, in your parents here with this interest in the paranormal and this interest in, uh, you know, uh, science fiction and exploration and curiosity. And that all came together. And at some point along the way, you took a, a little bit more of a serious look into these things and started to research and and, and write about and teach uh, mm-hmm. about um, these topics that we would consider consider in some cases rather macabre. Yeah, absolutely. 
um, I mean, it took me a while. I'll be honest. I mean, I, I'm not really joking about you do need tenure to start getting wacky. <laughs> right, so, right. So, you know, for a good seven years, I think I, I mean, my major research focus is actually deaf characters in adolescent literature. So it's completely benign. Um, and, you know, I have a lot actually going on this week with American Girl. They just released their 2020 uh, Girl of the Year. And I was on the team for that. So completely, um, you know, not interesting to my students at all. But my interests have always been like, I, you know, my mom's father was a genealogist. So I remember being you know, very little, just running around cemeteries, um, you know, with my granddaddy saying, sweet pea, can you find this name? And, you know, and it was just fun because here you are outside and the family's together. So I could run around and do all these things. And that was interesting. Um, as I got older, I just started, you know, looking into and being more curious about uh, cemeteries in general and how, you know, they're structured in the United States and why we don't seemingly go visit them. Because even in college, um, I was really close to Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, this beautiful garden cemetery that I now give tours of. And at the time, I just thought this is a great place for people to walk. And that's what it was intended for, for people to have some recreation and leisure to meander through the cemetery to reflect on your life, to reflect on others' lives. Um, so, but my mom was always, she was as weird as my mom is, she's always like, be careful in cemeteries. You know, people are, the criminals are hiding behind the obelisk. <laughs> and I'm always, always like, it's like 90 degrees in Virginia in the summer, and I'm walking around. If somebody's like waiting, they're going to be sweating for hours until I get there. Um, but I started with that, actually. Um, I decided I was going to create a course. Well, I guess I, I should back up. I did create a course on vampires, and it was completely a joke to try to get. Um, we have a general studies program, so when I was an undergrad, it was you know courses were very isolated. Um, English 101, history 101. Now the movement is much more interdisciplinary. So you either have team faculty members who come together from different disciplines, and you teach around a topic. Um, and I had come up with a faculty member who was sort of, you know, um, you know, focused on film studies. And I was like, we should do a vampire class. That would be great. She had never seen a vampire movie, completely not, you know, um, <laughs> uh, interested, but I convinced her to do it. And one of the components of that course was you have to have a connection to identity. And, you know, because we're at Gallaudet, our students are deaf. One of the, you know, course objectives is also to talk about deaf identity. So I used um, 19, I think it's 1973 film, um, Defula, which is a deaf vampire film. Oh, wow. And if you haven't heard of it, you should just do a little Google search because it's so classic. Wow. Um, I've never did that. And I have, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of it. And I, I've considered myself a connoisseur of these types of movies. And um, that's one I've not heard of. Yeah. So, I mean, but definitely check it out. It's a bizarre story. And... You know, one of so I talk about like even the 
the investigation on campus, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but um, I, I think of that as like a fun footnote. But one of the things I'm proud of being a professor at Gallaudet is that I've been able to introduce over like 200, 250 students to this film that their grandparents would have known about in the deaf community. Um, and actually some of their grandparents are actually in the film that I've taught. So it's like a nice little, you know, cycle of, oh, this is the past. This is that history of the past that I'm talking about, not only American history, but deaf American history, and then also Gallaudet history, because there was some connections with the the actors in the film. They were Gallaudet graduates. You know, so, you, you've mentioned, you, I'm sorry, you've mentioned Gallaudet a few times here, and um, mm-hmm. you've, you, you've uh, referenced the fact that they, uh, I, I don't know if they're exclusive to the hearing impaired, I'm not really sure. Can you tell us a little bit about the school? Sure. It's um, it was founded for um, deaf and hard of hearing students. In basically, I don't remember when hearing students were allowed. I actually was a graduate student, and I remember at that time about ten percent of the graduate student population, I think, could be hearing. Um, it's become a little bit more flexible, but the majority of you know students on campus are actually deaf and hard of hearing, and that was the way. I mean, it was set up. Um, it was an opportunity for deaf people to be educated because in the 1860s, there weren't really many opportunities to do that, you know, to do so. So it was founded. It, it was founded in the 1860s. Yes. Wow. 1864. I have to ask you, Sharon, about a quote on your website, and it may have no significance whatsoever, but it it, cap- it captured me a little bit. Uh, and this is on okay. the, this is on the the goth uh, gardening site. It's it, you say some plants and flowers, creepy things, and the dead brought me back to life. What does that mean? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I like creepy things. I am a gardener, so I like plants, and also the dead as in cemeteries. Um, And do do, do you mean, maybe maybe it's a little overstated there, but did did it renew your interest in living and exploring and experiencing things? Is that what that means? Well, I think as a, you know, as an adult, you tend to go a little bit, you know, I grew up like a goth girl and like a really, you know, weird sort of, uh, you know, lifestyle and had a lot of fun with it. And then as you get older, you sort of feel like you're supposed to be a little bit more normal. That's what <laughs> expected. Um, and I think somewhere, you know, like around like my thirties, I was just sort of like, what am I doing? Like, where am I going with this? Like, I should just, it was just so hard to feel like I was conforming to something that I wasn't. So I just sort of embraced being, you know, the weird, the inner weirdo that I am. And, uh, um, you know, started going, like doing, uh, you know, cemetery tours. I always, like, (laughs) you know, people talk about their dream jobs. And when I was a kid, I really wanted to become a tour guide. And I envisioned, like, you know, moving down to New Orleans, having one of those giant umbrellas so people could follow you, and I could just, like, walk through the streets and, you know, do a little spiel. Um, But, of course, when you go to college, no one really, you know, kind of the career center never tells you that that's a good field to go into. So (laughs) Yeah, and and I have have to be honest, those giant umbrellas aren't that cool. Yeah, they're, they're probably, I mean, I, <laughs> you, you need know, one I of those, you need did. one of those little flags. Those are the cool ones. <laughs> well, I, I do. Um, so I, I do currently do 
tours, and I do a big Christmas Eve's Eve tour at Hollywood Cemetery, and this year I had a giant candy cane. Um, so I think there's a picture on that website, on my blog, too. <laughs> so I may have put it there. So you um, you teach a course uh, on uh, dark tourism, but before we talk about the course and what you actually teach, mm-hmm. I guess we need to know what dark tourism is. Sure. I mean, it's the act of travel to sites associated with death and disaster. So it's an academic field that sort of connects death education and tourism studies. Um, basically, the label, you know, fairly new, like 1990s new, um, but it has a long history of like people that, you know, traveled to gladiator games, attended public executions, visited catacombs and cemeteries. There's always those people that go and travel places that are connected to death. I mean, we can make it very normal and say people that like war tourism, like battlefields, um, that sort of history. But I do tend to, oh, I'm traveling to Chicago. What am I going to do? I'm going to make sure that I get to Graceland Cemetery because I want to see the statues and whatnot there. So I always kind of did it a little bit myself and then realized, oh, this is an actual academic discipline that I can look into. It's interdisciplinary. And that's when I started getting the wheels turning about um, a course. So basically what what I've said so far tonight is that if I have a fun idea, I try to make a course out of it. Um, you said so many things that I have to comment on here, uh, and I'm not sure where to. I'm not sure where to start, but I do want to ask you about. You, you said, you know, use Chicago as an example and going to the cemetery because you want to see a certain statue. Is there really um, like a tourism revolving around monuments and cemeteries? I I really enjoy visiting cemeteries, and I enjoy it. Not so much for the monuments, but because I like it, you can get a sense of the history of a location by reading the headstones. It's just it's you can learn a, you can learn a lot from that. And now I'm very very curious about these you know the 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 actual monuments that are in these cemeteries. Is that something that people actually go out of their way to visit because of certain monuments in certain cemeteries? Well, sure. Um, I mean, if you want to talk about like you know if people want to go see the presidents, like it's. It's very popular to go see people sure. who are famous right. and you know have have died, um, and are died and are buried. There are ten those yeah cemeteries usually are full of the dead, um, yes. but there yeah there are people who are art historians and they actually want to see the sculptures and I you know I talk about with my friends they're like oh you're taking a picture of that again, but the thing is is that it's out in nature it's. You never know when you're going to walk into a cemetery that you've been in, you know, um, just 10 days ago, and now that monument is gone Mm. because a tree or, you know, um, lightning struck it and, you know, struck a tree that knocked over an obelisk, and that's it. Like, you really can't repair some of these things back to the state that they were in originally. Um, so, you know, you have to visit your old friends. Yeah. Um, but I will I will plug, like, Lauren Rhodes, I, hopefully I'm saying her name correctly, but she just came out with, I think it was 2018, 100 cemeteries to see before you die. So there is a group of people who actually do go to cemeteries. They're, I call them cemeterians because I run a group, um, tapophiles, uh, you know, tombstone tourists, whatever you want to call it. But there are people who, you know, take a vacation to the cemetery um, around the nation, around the world. 
I think I've been one of those people and not realized that I actually had a name and there was actually other people that did the same thing. I'm, I'm actually getting yeah. excited about this right now. Um, <laughs> this whole idea of dark tourism. Now, one of the things I th- find very interesting that we're having this conversation tonight is, and I haven't really watched much of this, but I've noticed on Netflix and other places there are television yep. shows popping up revolving around exactly what you just described. Yes. Um, and and I think like the next the Netflix show was coming on when I was starting to so I had the idea like I want to do this course but I I thought even saying dark tourism sounds a little ominous and I really wanted my university to you know look at me not like I was a crazy but somebody that you know was a professional so I did go and get like a certificate in public history to kind of show like I know what I'm talking about um and then from there I could speak eloquently about uh dark tourism in a way that uh they felt a little bit more comfortable but I had the idea and then it just felt like this is the right time there's shows popping up in Netflix people are posting about it and, you know, you'd see just different articles. And if you did a Google search, you would easily see, like, um, you know, just – I'm trying to – not just, like, the Washington Post, you know, kind of having a serious article. But just, you know, like, around social media, people are talking about dark tourism and going to these places that are connected to death and disaster. I, uh, you, you mentioned you know taking a picture of a monument because you never know if a tree will fall and knock it down, whatever it happens to be. I live in Cooperstown, New York, and we have an older cemetery here. It's old by many standards, but not by some. You know, you get into Boston mm-hmm. and, and places like that. There's some really right, right, old right. ones, but um, I, I walk through uh, these the cemetery here in Cooperstown quite often. It's right in the middle of the village, and there are so many headstones that were made from simple. Um, and I'm I'm no uh, Geologist, so I'm not even sure what the stone is, but it's obviously comes some kind of stone that was just pulled out of the ground locally, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it, and every letter that was on the face of that headstone has been worn away by by the weather, by you know, by right. erosion, yeah. uh, and and they're lost to time. And I'm sure there's documents mm-hmm. somewhere that that let people know, you know, who is actually there. Um, but when maybe. I see, yeah, well, that's true. It's it, it's a big maybe, but that is that is mm-hmm. sad because well, you know, once those names are lost and and those histories are lost, you know, we we lose a lot with it. What we do, and but think about JV. Do you know your grandparents' names? Do I know my grandparents? Oh, yes, I do. Okay. Do you know your great grandparents' names? Yes, I kind of do. <laughs> okay. I think so I could tell easy, them and like, tell you what they're. As, as we get, you know, as we progress back in our genealogy, we start to. It's only a few generations that we actually right. remember. Right. So if you're thinking about, you know, the American cemeteries, I see, you know, millennials and Generation Z, they're already talking about they don't want these elaborate garden cemeteries of the Victorian time. Those are old. It's, you know, big waste of space. For them, they're very much about green cemeteries. So some of their monuments are actually wood. Uh, they're, you know, they're talking about create something that actually erodes along with the time that the memories my loved ones have of me, mm-hmm. because once they're gone, the wood will be gone, and then, you know, the next generation comes, you know, forward. And, and some people find that a little bit depressing, but I think it's it's interesting. Yeah, like, I'm not sure what I think. Different... I'm not sure what I think about that. I'm going to have to give that one some thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, getting back to this whole idea of dark tourism, uh, 
it, is this a, 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 a symptom of what would be an, an, an innate morbid curiosity that we all carry around? Yeah, and it's, I mean, I don't know if it's that morbid, but I guess it is a little bit morbid. But I, when I set the class up, um, it immediately filled within, you know, like a day of the registration period. And then I had requests for overloads. And then I ran the course again and, they, and again immediately filled. And the students are just buzzing about it because it's a place where you can actually come together and safely talk about death and even these morbid things like um, are they sick for wanting to go to the catacombs when they go on vacation? No, absolutely not. And here's all the people who actually do that. Um, so I, I think it, it is something that we're all interested in, we're all curious about, and when you put together an environment where it's okay to talk about it and to learn about it, then it just becomes a little bit more comfortable. And I, uh, I try to do. Yeah, I visited the, the catacombs in Paris a few times. Uh, one of the most amazing experiences of my life, and there's something about wandering around subterranean passages that are just stacked with skulls and, and femurs and whatever other bones you know the human body has, because there's right. mi- millions of them in these catacombs. Um, and I don't know if that if that feeling is an energy that comes from some kind of spirituality or if it's an energy that comes from within us because we recognize what we're looking at. Maybe a little bit of both. And, I mean, there's there's studies, there's researchers that actually talk about many people go into cemeteries or ossuaries or any sort of catacombs with the idea that they're seeking. And, you know, if you think about college students, they're right at the age of being seekers. What will happen to me? What will happen to my loved ones? Um, what's their connection to the spirit beyond. Um, those are just, you know, I think it's questions that we're all fascinated with. When, and when you teach, that, that's healthy. Yeah, when you teach a course on dark tourism, your course on dark tourism, uh, what do you want the students to leave at the end of the semester or however long the class is? What, what do you want them to leave with? Well, I, I laugh because I'm going to say, like, I ruin a lot of their fun. Um, well, the big questions that we have are basically who are the tourists, who are the hosts, and why are we traveling to these places? Why are the host sites setting up these opportunities for us? And then what are the impacts? So those are the big questions. But then, and then also if it's accessible to, you know, for, to deaf people, to people with physical disabilities, um, to common, you know, any, any person, can they get there legally or is it off limits? Um, but one of the examples of the conversation we had this past semester was about the ethics of converting a historic asylum to a contemporary haunted house because it was you know Halloween and the students were actually talking about some of them wanted to go out to Pennhurst State Hospital sure which you know had I, been shut down for overcrowding and, yeah I've, I've spent know, patient I've, abuse and, I spent a couple weekends of the last couple of summers they have a paracon there that I've attended yeah so now the property like during October, it's a haunted house, and this potentially can trivialize 
the suffering that, you know, of those who actually live there. Um, and I'm not saying don't go. I'm not saying go. I'm just saying think about it to my students. But um, I did have some who were super excited about going to this haunt, and I showed them the advertisement, and they were just like, you know, mind blown. This is so scary, all these jump scares. It's going to be so cool. But then we started talking about the history of this place and what actually happened there. And, you know, I was like laugh. I just sort of become this buzzkill because – once you start discussing the ethical concerns of such a haunted attraction, it doesn't seem so appealing. Um, I did have some students who went out and they were going through and, you know, here there's they have the actors who are like the mad scientists, mad doctors, and then they have the crazy asylum patients. And my student, you know, shared that at first it was sort of fun because, you know, they were with their friends, but then they started thinking about the course readings and what we had talked about. And all of a sudden this isn't, this is a little uncomfortable. Um, you know, and, and I said, like I went through some haunted houses, similar themes like here in Richmond. So it's just something, you know, I want students to think about. I want them to always reflect and it's a general studies course. So I think there's a misconception that I'm teaching content, but I'm not, I'm actually teaching skills. So I want them to be critical thinkers. I want them to write and be persuasive. Um, so that, I guess, is my answer. <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> a good answer. So uh, when when you, um, I'm trying to, what type of uh, homework assignments do you give in a course like this? What type of tests do you give? Or maybe there's, maybe it's none of the above. Maybe it's more the experience. What's I mean, it's a little of both. I mean, it's like we don't really have tests, of course not, but um, they do have a final, and it's like a final reflection so that they have to reflect on the course readings and give me their response. Like, So a, a typical question could be something like um, to discuss these, you know, to discuss Pennhurst and why should that be funded or not be funded, um, you know, pro- Having that turn that location turn into a haunted attraction means you save the building, and now we have the history, and they have an opportunity that at the end of the haunted event they can tell you what actually went, you know, happened there, um, and people learn a little bit, and that's public history. You learn a little bit of that history, in sort of you know what they call an um, like an entertainment education. Um, so. It's a good opportunity to save a building, but is it better that we just let it kind of, you know, be demolished and talk about what was? I don't know what the answer is. But Do you, um, It sounds like you might lean one way or another. I, I think it depends on the location, too. And, one of you know, one of the big things that we talk about is intention of why do we go to these places? What's our intention? Do I go in a cemetery because I want to pose on, you know, the grave markers and do awesome pictures? Well, no, of course not. But some people do. Yeah. So I just want my students to be good citizens and think about what what is here. I mean, how can we still have fun but doing it in a, an ethical way? Um and so I, I talked about, like, the Crescent Hotel. One of the activities, actually, that I have them do is, like, a branding assignment. So while my mom and I went out to the Crescent Hotel, clearly because we wanted that dark pass, we're sitting in the lobby, and my mom, you know, like me, likes to chat people up. 
and there's this bridal party that come, you know, that comes in to the lobby and, you know, they're going to have a wedding there. And my mom's, you know, chatting with them and talking about how the place is haunted. And the first night, you know, I was going to sleep and I felt, um, I, I did feel like a nudge. Um, I don't know if I was dozing off. I'm sort of a skeptic about that kind of stuff. But so my mom's sharing this and the bride's face completely goes pale. She did not realize that the Crescent Hotel was haunted because they have two websites. Um, they actually have one that advertises them as this, you know, be- beautiful historic place, great wedding venue, spa. And they also have America's most haunted hotel. Um, obviously, we went to the latter website. They went to the former. So one of the things I have my students do is actually look at the branding of these places that could be labeled dark and you know, see how they brand themselves. Do they try to portray themselves as a historic location? Um, do they hide their history someplace on the website? Um, one example is the Hotel Henry in Buffalo, New York. Um, you might be familiar with it. I'm not sure, but it was the Buffalo State Asylum for the Insane. Does that seem familiar at all? Yeah, it actually, actually does, oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. So um, I actually I had a friend who was, who ended up going to a conference and she stayed in that hotel, not realizing that it used to be an insane asylum. Um, and then immediately, you know, sent me a text, Hey, guess where I am? <laughs> um, Cause that's what everyone seems to do. Like if there's anything weird, I always get a text, but so they actually, um, they have a, like a variety of photography on their website, but it doesn't really focus on the past being that dark. I mean, if you dig for it, you can find, a little bit of it, but they do frame it in a way that's like a therapeutic approach to restoration. So here you have this building, and if you believe that buildings hold, you know, sort of trapped energy, any sort of negative feelings, well, their belief is that they're they're making this into a hotel, and it they're sending out the positive vibes in a way to sort of like neutralize that dark past, which is a sort of interesting approach. But. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, we have to go to break here in just a couple of minutes, so I don't want to ask a question that's going to be too involved here. So tell us about uh, um, if if somebody is interested in in exploring some of this stuff, whether it's with you. I mean, most of the people listening to the program, I think, are uh, uh, kind of uh, past the idea of, of taking a college course. But uh, right. what are other ways they can get involved with this kind of thing? I know you have some websites and stuff, too. Yeah, um, there's like the Dark Tourist website to, um, I can't, the, the name of the person who runs that sort of popped out of my head. But there's, if you're really looking for places that are dark, you can go and just sort of, you know, do that Google search, dark tourism, and the location and find that. Um, It it depends on what you're interested in, too. Like, if you, like, I tend to go to cemeteries. My students, um, they really like the crazy, dark, you know, there was a murder that happened here. Not really into that. Um, So you can just Google search, like, the history of that location. Uh, There's also meetup groups um, that I've seen. And so I think now it's pretty popular, especially with the Netflix series, even to put dark tourism in a location and you're going to get some answers. A reminder, go to YouTube. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel because that is becoming the hub of our community. That is where I stream live. That is where I upload bonus content. 
That is where there's an archive of about 500 back episodes of the program, and it's free to subscribe. You just go there and click the subscribe button, and you're all set. It's something you can listen to and watch on your phone, on your television, on your computer, on your iPad, or whatever it happens to be, your tablet. doesn't matter. It's very easy to access that. Also, if you're a podcast enjoyer, if you enjoy podcasts, you can find Beyond Reality Paranormal on all major podcast platforms. Please subscribe there as well. We appreciate you supporting the show. No matter how you listen, we welcome you to our community. So again, tonight we're talking about uh, the spooky, the creepy, the unusual in some cases, cemeteries, vampires, dark Tourism is the overriding uh, phrase here tonight. And our guest is Dr. Sharon Peka, a professor, a speaker, and uh, I'm really excited to have her here. I want to ask a little bit more about your work with the deaf and the hearing impaired, um, particularly as it pertains to the paranormal and paranormal investigating. How does all that come together for you? Well, so, you know, once I was talking about when I got tenure and I started creating all these different classes, it started with the vampire course and the students that was pretty popular. After that, I set up the cemetery course in the summer. Um, just, you know, we're in Washington, D.C., and there's these great historic cemeteries. So I thought this would be great because students want to get out of the classroom. We can physically go to them and learn while we're in the cemetery. So I thought that would be a lot of fun. Um, I actually learned probably more than the students about how students aren't used to being in the cemetery. <laughs> so it was slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I had to tell them what to do versus usually you're like, don't do this, don't do that. No, you can walk on the grass. There weren't driveways when the cemetery was set up. <laughs> Please, you know, walk. <laughs> it's and then I remember once I was like, "Look, come look in the window of this mausoleum. And they were like, why? I'm like, because you're going to see some amazing things. And they're like, is it going to scare us? I'm like, stained glass? Like, that's not going to scare you. <laughs> look in the window. So they didn't realize that these are things that you can actually do in a cemetery. But so, you know, coming together with the dark tourism, the you know, a small part of that is paranormal tourism. I'm not really like I'm like the worst person to do a paranormal investigation because I get bored kind of easily. I like to move about and you have to be still and silent. I'm like a big sniffler. Like I'm always like making noise and getting looked at by people. So it's just usually not my cup of tea. But with deaf people, they can't hear me sniffle. It's not a big deal. Um, so I had this idea that I could actually ask the university president, um, President Cordano, if we could do a paranormal investigation of the president's house. Now, I'll tell you the secret that I haven't told most people publicly is that I really wanted to see the president's house third floor, which is the private quarters. Um, it's a public building to, you know, the community. So the first floor, even the second floor, sometimes you get like a nice little tour of, but the third floor is always off limits. So I had this idea that somehow I could get in the house and then I could just see like, what does the third floor look like? Because it's this beautiful, like Victorian Gothic revival mansion. Can I, t um, can I tell you a little secret before you continue? Yeah. I, I am planning the same strategy to visit Graceland, Elvis Presley's house. Yeah. Same exact strategy. <laughs> Paranormal investigation, you got to let me access everything, right? Mm -hmm. Did it work? Yep. It worked yep. for you, right? This should work for me. It it worked for me. Yeah, so, so it, should, it should, should work for you. Right. <laughs> All right. So what? So so you planned this, and what happened? So I actually, um, I decided to ask 
you know, so I have to explain a couple of things. So I decided to ask the president at a holiday party in front of other people if I could do this. Kind of to put her on, a little bit on the spot, but my intention, which is awful to even say this publicly, was that in deaf community, you don't say, you don't start something and then say, never mind. Um, ASL, American Sign Language, and even just the history of deaf education in our country is very much about access to information and communication. So if something happens in my classroom, I just I can't continue until everybody knows exactly what happened. Like if you know somebody fell out of the desk because they fell asleep or whatever, and and other people miss seeing it, you have to explain like what happened. That's just a cultural norm in the deaf community. So my plan was to go into this holiday function of faculty um, and to mention to the president that I wanted to ask her something, but that I would ask her later because this was wasn't really the appropriate time. And I knew that, you know, most people, and also because she's, um, you know, deaf, she would say, no, wait, tell me. Um, and then I'd be like, no, no. And then she's like, no, you need to tell me. And then I could ask. And then at that point, um, I've already asked and she's going to say yes. So that's what I did. <laughs> and then I, you know, publicly posted it. Like, well, I mean, I posted it on my Facebook wall to like my peers and some former students, you know, just kind of saying like, she said, yes. Um, but it was sort of a hesitant get with me next semester when this actually becomes a student project. Yes. So I knew that it was contingent upon, you know, some a few things. Um, one of the the final assignment in the course is a service learning project focused on dark tourism sites. And the students research different locations, the history, they create a project that that contributes in a substantial way to making that location accessible. So like you and I can go to, you know, a paranormal investigation and have access to it, you know, fairly freely. Um, but deaf people, they, you know, there are barriers with language. I mean, if people aren't willing to have something like written in text, that does become a challenge. So that's one of the reasons that there is that final project. So while I had asked the president for permission, it wasn't until two of my students decided that they were going to take on this, you know, paranormal investigation of House One, the president's house, as their project that she actually, you know, was like, okay, they have this proposal, um, they've developed some research, okay, um, and then she gave us the green light. So at that point, um, it was really important for me to find a paranormal investigation team preferably who was deaf, um, and who used sign language. Because at Gallaudet, we have, you know, very direct communication, faculty and staff with our students. There's not, you know, unless you're a new sign or student, there's not a lot of going through an interpreter to get to the, you know, professor. It's direct communication. That's one of the things that we pride ourselves on. But I couldn't find anyone in the D.C. area who was a paranormal investigation team, who was deaf, who would answer my emails and respond to me in a timely way. So I was sort of publicly, you know, talking about my frustration with this when Steve Dills, um, the director of Transcend Paranormal here in Richmond, um, we actually were neighbors at one point. So I've, you know, known him for a good amount of time. But he actually, you know, sort of piped in and was like, we would love to do that. And I'm like, heck yeah, because it's a beautiful old home, this historic place. Um, 
But he assured me that they would be able to, like, use equipment so that no one felt like they were being left out. And that was really important to me. Um, So, you know, I was like, okay, let me talk to my students and talk to them about, you know, how do you feel? Here's a hearing team. They don't know anything about sign language or deaf people. Um, Is that cool? And, you know, the students, for the most part, they were just like, no, we're totally going to proceed because we're going to do a paranormal investigation and the event itself will be accessible. So I don't really care. I mean, they're used to dealing with hearing people that don't know sign language. That's, not that, you know, huge of a deal for them. So we proceeded. Um, the students pretty much took the lead. They collaborated with Transcend Paranormal via email. They set up communication guidelines. Um, the students also researched paranormal investigations of historic sites because, you know, this was a class. So they um, needed to look at the associated, like, ethical issues of hosting such an event, like who are the stakeholders, who will be affected, um, what's the possible, you know, implications of this. And one of the things that we discussed was the mission of House One as a historic site and what policies should be in place to protect and preserve the site and its location. So I had known as like a faculty member and, you know, I actually, um, my master's degree is from Gallaudet and deaf education. So I had I'd known House One has all these, like, amazing art collections, like these one-of-a-kind statues, but it wasn't until, like, we were doing this investigation, or even before that, like, the team is sort of, you know, dropping wires and setting up, you know, cameras, that I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is a lot of responsibility. Um, I really hope that nothing breaks or is damaged. Um, The university was putting a lot of trust in all of us, it, you know, because they had not only, you know, deaf history, but like American history in that building. So um, it, it, we were a pretty close group. But I think after the investigation, the whole, you know, the student group and I were, you know, you sit in the dark um, <laughs> together for several hours. Right. It really does bond you. Um so, and what, one of the things I should mention, too, is that one of the challenges of the investigation that, uh, hello, I did not think about was that paranormal investigations are usually pretty dark. So, and we were using a language where you have to see one another, um, which required us to all, you know, pretty much take out our phones and use, like, the flashlight app on our, you know, mobile devices. And I'm pretty sure that I, you know, flashed the president's face one too many times just trying to see what she was saying. Like, um, there's that fine line of seeing someone and what they're saying and also blinding them. So that's – and she, you know, I don't know if I mentioned before, but she actually participated with us in the investigation. Oh, neat. Okay. Which was huge, you know, so – let me let me ask some questions, and I don't mean any of this to, to be insulting in any way. I just want to understand the level of this because, you know, when someone says they're going to go on a paranormal investigation, there are so many levels that it can take the form of. Would you consider that particular investigation that you put together and with the um, hearing disabled uh, a serious investigation, or was it more casual? I mean, what level of um, seriousness would you say that – that particular investigation had? Well, first, deaf people call themselves deaf, so okay. they're perfectly fine with that. Okay, fine. Um, yeah, it, just so you I just thought you also had hard of yeah, hearing uh, folks, too, and I, they're not completely deaf. I didn't know if it was, yeah. a, you know, was trying to encompass everybody here. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and even hard of hearing people at Gallaudet usually say deaf. It's just easier because it's, you know, school for the deaf. But okay, gotcha. Any, anyhow, I, I would say that Transcend um, Paranormal, the Richmond team that came out, they were taking this very seriously because this was, you know, it's a university. It's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty big deal for them. Um, my students looked at it as this is very serious because it could be the only time that they get to participate in a paranormal investigation. So I would say that the level of seriousness was, like, incredibly high. Um, I think I might have been even a little too casual in or even blasé about, oh, you know, we're going to do this. I have to stay up late because I'm, you know, I extreme commuter. I get up at 430 in the morning. Yikes. Um, usually I'm way, you know, I'm, I'm asleep at this point. Um, so I so one of the things that happened was that we were supposed to have like a hard stop at 12 because, um, you know, the, the investigation team wanted to they wanted they were going to head back to Richmond. Um, and that's like two hours like drive. And they had, you know, we had interpreters who also were going to end up staying overnight in House One, so they were a little bit freaked out anyway. Um, but at a certain point, the president was like, oh, everybody's having fun, like, let's let's continue this to make sure that everybody gets exactly what they want out of it. So we continued to, like, 2.30 in the morning, um, which is not at all what I expected. But... I, I think once it started, I realized, oh wow, yeah. this is House One, and um, and I I did joke with like some of my peers, and in a sort of like, thank God I have tenure because I really think I could get fired on Monday <laughs> um, if something doesn't go well, and it it was a you know, like I want it to go well for my students, and it was really important, um, and I did tell the paranormal investigation team that if we find nothing. If my students have a good time, that was the most important thing for me, was for them to have access and to enjoy themselves. Um, Steve was really cool because he was like, no, we're going to do more than that, you know, and, and we did. So you have uh, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to speed up some of these questions here so I can get to everything. But you had a paranormal investigative team. You had a paranormal group there working with you on this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, did, friends that did, are paranormal. Did they happen to notice? Uh, I, I'm really, really curious about uh, the experience that your, your deaf students had during this process because, you know, we all have a sensory balance. And I found that in some investigations, um, we actually do things like blindfold people so that they become more aware with their other senses and don't rely on vision. Or um, there's there's an experiment that's being done that put some noise-canceling headphones on people so that they can experience things differently. Did the people, the, the, the paranormal investigative team in communicating with your students get any sense that maybe they had a, had a different kind of experience than those who weren't deaf may have had? Well, yes. I, you know, talking to Steve afterwards and um, he really felt like that they it changed how they were going to do future investigations. I mean, they borrowed equipment. Like they had, I think we had like 16 cameras, you know, set up in the house. They really wanted to focus on visuals. They really wanted to focus on, um, you know, other senses, not just, you know, voice recordings and whatnot. I mean, I think they set some of that up too, but um, because the students, they were curious. But, um, you know, Steve talked about for them, they – sort of ended up relying on that maybe a little bit too much. And, you know, hopefully I'm not 
relying on what? Relying on what? Relying on what, Sharon? Too much. Uh, relying, uh, sorry, on you know, voice recording, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I hadn't really been in like a full paranormal investigation before. I had attended one, and I think I ended up leaving like halfway in because I just, you know, like I said, don't have a lot of patience to sit around. <laughs> but um, so I'm not really sure what a standard paranormal investigation looks like. But I do know, like from television shows, that often it's you know playing a lot of like voice you know, kind of sound-based things, you know, to, to show what was captured. Um, and, you know, sometimes visuals, too. But I think with the with Transcend Paranormal, they really started focusing on, like, what else can we do? So not so much, like, let's not do this, but what have we been limiting ourselves in doing? Um, with the student, I mean, I, I'll say, like, just a, a huge shout-out to them, too, was that, my, you know, my student leaders came and immediately Steve, you know, sometimes like hearing people don't know how to address a deaf person. They don't know what to do. Um, but he just, you know, he quickly jumped in and, you know, was working with my student leaders by showing them like what to do and then having them do it like a very hands-on. Here's how we set up equipment. You don't have to say, here's how we set up equipment. You just show how you do it. Um, and they picked it up really quickly. So there was a lot of like communication that was happening without language. And, you know, to me, that was, that was huge too. Um, just the comfort level. I have to change the topic because we, we're going to run out of time here. But um, vampires are part of what I've been talking about as a topic all night. Where do vampires fit into your curriculum, your story here, all the things that you're doing? Well, I have a, a separate course, Vampires, the, the Significance of Vampires, like in history, um, of literature and film. And I actually haven't taught that course in a little over a year. I. I get a little, so I, you know, I think I taught it for a good seven years straight, back to back, semester after semester. And it really is, you know, we start with historic vampires, like in film, Nosferatu, you know, nineteen twenty-two, yeah. and kind of, you know, talk about what's going on in the world at the time. And, and again and again, I always talk about it's not about, like you said in the beginning of the show, that people are much more frightening than, you know, the boogeyman out there. And that's the same thing for vamp- the vampire course, is that we talk about vampires as the metaphor. Who are we actually, we're blaming the vampire, but who is that really? Are we talking about our fear of technology? Are we fear- talking about our fear of strangers, of immigrants? Like, what is the other that we're trying to kind of scapegoat and you know, that was, that's what that course is about. Um, but at a certain point, I feel like, you know, there's a saturation of vampires, and I have to let them go for a little bit so that they can resurrect themselves. They never really go away. Um, you know, some things are a fad, like zombies can be sort of a fad, but vampires are consistently popular. But I think for me it gets a little heavy sometimes, and I do have to you know, stop and take a break and change courses and mix it up a little bit for myself. When we talk about things like vampires, and in a bit I'm going to talk with you about ghost stories, do you, cons- okay. do you consider all of that to be tales or accounts? Well, it depends on what how you want to define a vampire. So we can talk about folkloric vampires, 
um, the vampires that are coming, you know, they're creatures of the undead returning to look for shoes. That's kind of how <laughs> folkloric vampires are. They're not biting into your flesh with their sharp teeth necessarily, but they're they're the dead who are lost and, um, you know, sort of want to go through their daily routine. Um, but then you can talk about more contemporary vampires, and there are people who identify as vampires who live a right. lifestyle of being a vampire. Some of them actually do drink blood, um, you know, not like a supernatural vampire that you see on a, a movie or even that you read in a book, but, you know, sort of lifestylers. I'm trying to get it, gauge your perspective on on some of this as well. Um, you know, we have people, some of the people you've just described we have on this program, we have um, people that research very, very seriously the existence of real supernatural vampires. Um, so I'm curious if you, if you think any of that might have some substance. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to discount it because I don't know. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I always say, like, I really, when my students, when I start teaching any of these courses, the first question they ask me is, do I believe in X? Do I believe in vampires? Right. And I usually say, I, you know, I'm always, like, sort of sarcastic and silly about it. And I'm like, I would love to see a unicorn, but I'm not a virgin in the woods, you know, something like that. Um, so I think it's healthy to be a skeptic, but I also think it's pretty healthy to believe in magic and believe that something else is out there. Um, so I don't know if I ever want to discount it, and I don't know if I ever want to know that vampires exist, because that is super freaky, too. Yeah, I have to say that my the first experience <laughs> I've had, I had when I was a child uh, that, that haunted me and continues to haunt me was the first time I saw Bela Lugosi's Dracula, on television, yeah. my mother let me stay up and watch it, and I did not sleep for a week, and she was building crosses out of everything we had in the house uh, and putting it around <laughs> my bed so I would at least try to go to sleep. And, um, you know, I guess that's where my fascination with horror movies started, I suppose. Um, and, and well, I, so I'm going to interrupt you, sure. but I actually grew up, you know, I grew up Catholic, so one of the things I do is, I cor- like, I collect crosses and crucifixes, Um and I have, like, when I met my husband, I lived in an apartment, and the entire wall was, it was like 45 different crosses just on one wall, and I thought it looked really cool. And he was like, whoa, that's kind of intense. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I think part of, you know, my dad working night shift, always telling people he was a vampire, um, you know, it was that hopeful, we sh- it, it, it's nice to believe Let's keep believing. Um, do I want one to knock on my door and say, invite me in? Uh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> do you have a favorite uh, vampire film? Bella Lugosi. Yeah. yeah hard, I mean, just... hard to beat that one, right? Although I love yeah, Nosferatu, I mean, yeah. <laughs> too. The, Nosferatu is super creepy. Um, ghost stories. Oh, are yeah. not, you teach a course on ghost stories and haunted history, too. Uh, let's talk about yeah. that a little bit. Um, so I... <laughs> One of the things with the dark tourism class is that I realized my students were interested in things that were very dark. Um, I, I, on that spectrum of what is really dark tourism and what is more gray, lighter tourism, um, 
I think I'm, you know, on the continuum of that light part. So cemeteries, I don't really think of that as dark and heavy. Some of my students do, though. Um, But I really wanted to have a course where we as a group could, like, analyze ghost and literature, folklore, pop culture, and and sort of to, you know, similar with the vampires, looking at them as a metaphor, I wanted to see, like, how ghosts represented, you know, like in the stories, they created a voice or identity. Um, so ghosts as metaphors. And I developed the course sort of as a way to unpack some of American history that's, like, on the fringe. Um, so I know that you've had, like, Lisa Morton on the show before, Ghosts of yeah. Haunted History. So we use her book, and then we also use her recent anthology of traditional ghost stories. And um, then also Colin Dickey's um, Ghostland, American History and Haunted Places. So those are, you know, some of the texts that I use. And, you know, we talk about, like, Winchester Mystery House, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, most of the listeners know the story that here's a woman who keeps building this house in California, and it becomes this, you know, monstrosity that doesn't make any sense to anyone and that you know the the ghosts are making her do it and she has to keep building until they're satisfied because her husband you know owns the winchester rifle company um but then the truth is to me like is much more interesting so i like taking these like sort of legends and you know little pieces of american folklore and then really digging into them to it, like so, I learned even in the class, like while I was researching, that um, Sarah Winchester was she was like five ten, so she wasn't you know a very tall woman, and at the end of her life she had rheumatoid arthritis, so she actually, you know, this is a woman who lived with you know way too much money and didn't have any children her you know her child had passed on her husband had passed on so she was a woman that just could do whatever she wanted and was not trained in sort of any sort of architectural design and just sort of played with it she had the money to let's start this let's start that maybe not finish it i change my mind just leave it we have plenty of you know space and plenty of money um but she actually did build stairs for herself that you know, or considered risers, very short steps, because with rheumatoid arthritis, she wasn't able to, you know, really lift her legs more than like two inches off the ground. So creating what, you know, people talk about as these hauntingly weird steps, well, no, it was actually accessible for her. Um, and, you know, I remember reading a story and I thought, oh, this is really fascinating. She was really into gardening and, but again, later in life, wasn't able to really go out. So she had a room that was built with the floorboard you could lift up, and there was like a metal floor underneath, and that's where she would, you know, water her plants. So in a sense, she could stay inside of her house and garden. Of course, staying inside your house, you're a single woman. People are very uncomfortable with that. She's considered, you know, at the time, like the 1%. We're very cautious 
wealth of the wealthy, especially the super rich. Um, and then from there, stories just sort of continue, and we put labels on her. We project shame on her, but um, there's really no evidence that she saw a psychic, that she believed in ghosts, or that she even carried any guilt about the Winchester rifle. Very bizarre that you brought up the Win- <laughs> Winchester house. No, I, I, I think it's a oh, fasc- okay. fascinating story, but I, I swear the Winchester house has come up in conversations on this program and with outside of this program for me at least a dozen times in the last two or three days it's i don't understand it's just coming up everywhere it's pretty it's pretty fascinating um you may have just told us your favorite ghost story i don't know if you have or not but if that wasn't it what is your favorite ghost story well, one of the, the one of the activities in my class, one of the assignments is they actually my students have to either create an original ghost story or they have to um, take a traditional ghost story and tweak it. So when I start that, I like if I if I make my students do an assignment, I tend to do the assignment myself. Um, also to have a model, so I tell a variation of like one of the urban legends. I think it's called like the ghostly hitchhiker or the vanishing hitchhiker. Um, basically what I say is that, and I elaborate, like I, I sort of take this urban legend and make it my own. So when I was young, I'll tell my students that I was, you know, like 16 years old. I was driving with my like best friend, um, grew up in New Kent County, Virginia. And at that point I give them history because that's where, uh, Martha Custard went to church and where she married George Washington right down the street. Um, so we, we turn on St. Peter's church and it's pouring rain and I'm a new driver. And all of a sudden we're at this crossroads because actually is a crossroads there. And I also like it because it's creepy vampire. That's where they're buried. But so I add that in and I just say, there's this woman and she's, you know, like this young girl and we notice that she's a teen and it's like pouring down rain and she's drenched. And my friend's like, you've got to pick her up. It's raining. And I'm like, no, I'm a teenager. Like I'm not supposed to pick up strangers. But in, in the end, she convinces me to pick up the stranger. So the girl gets in the back seat and, you know, we're driving and just kind of, you know, talking to her, going down like this country road and saying like, you know, where do you live? And she doesn't say anything. It's really freaky. Um, Eventually she points out a house. And so we realize, oh, we should drop her off. So we go, we drop her off. um, And then we leave. And, you know, my friend and I are like, whoa, that was weird. And just, you know, teenage girls kind of giggling about it. But when I get home, like the next day, I realize that her sweater, this girl that we picked up her sweaters in my in the back seat so I convinced my friend she has to come with me because it was her idea anyway to pick up a stranger so we go to the house where we dropped her off the night before and you know the sweater's still a little bit damp and I knock on the door and you know her mom answers and you know we explain we dropped her off last night sorry the sweater's wet but she left it in the car and her mom's you know sort of looking at us like in shock because her daughter died 15 years ago. So I tell this story, and then my students are like, is it true? And I'm like, well, it's, yeah, New Kent is where, the, you know, the Washington, George Washington and Martha Custers got married. Yeah, sure, that's true. But, no, there was a new hitchhiker. So you just sort of embellish that. So that's probably my favorite ghost story. Those types of, for some reason, you know, there's a lot of, lot of ghost stories uh, that have a similar theme and that particular theme yeah. always gives me a bit of a shiver down my spine when I hear it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, me too. Something about that. Um, what are cemeterians? You mentioned that you were a cemeterian. Is that people that just visit cemeteries or respect cemeteries? Or, or 
yeah. go out of their way to find cemeteries? Is that is that what that um, yeah. word means? Say, like a tombstone tourist, basically a dark tourism, that same sort of concept, except you're going just to cemeteries. So I started with like a meetup group where I thought I originally saw another city have a group of um, tombstone tourists, I think is what they called themselves. And I was like, Richmond has some really cool cemeteries. Why don't we have this group? And um, I laughed later on with someone who said, like, it's just very Richmond, Virginia mentality that if you see it and you want it, you build it. You don't wait for somebody else to do it. So I set up a meetup group, and then it became this Facebook um, page that is continually growing. Um, we get together. We go to historic places. Sometimes we do, like, a road trip. Um, but, yeah, the focus is going on historic cemeteries. Sometimes we volunteer. Um, we have, like, a historic rose in the cemetery day where we prune roses. We also head out, and, you know, sometimes you pull ivy um, if the cemetery is sort of dilapidated and they're trying to repair it. So there's different volunteer opportunities, but and sometimes they give tours. And how many how many people are members of the group that you run? Um, right now on our Facebook page, we have, I think, a little over 1,000. Nice. Obviously, they all do not come out, but I would say about 20 people who or actively, you know, coming out. Um, if I do a tour, it's more people because they're more interested in that, um, you know, more social events. There are fewer people, <laughs> fewer people. So if you can be a participant, we, we draw larger numbers. But if it's something where you're actually going to interact with some other people, nah, we're about 20 to 30 people. I know that you uh, answered part of this already, but we have a question in our chat room about the inve- going back to the investigation at the president's house mm-hmm. or any other paranormal investigation that you might have been involved with. And the question relates to the tech used. You mentioned a lot of cameras. Any other specific tech used in the investigation? Maybe a ghost box, a K2 meter, EMF meters, thermometers, anything else? Um, yes, but I'm not really good as like a vocabulary person when it comes to like the technical equipment. Um, for me, like I know that they set up a ton of equipment, but in the end, when we were like on the third floor, it really came down to a flashlight. <laughs> um, you know, so one of those like little mag, I think it's like a mag light yeah. where, you know, that it's sort of on off or yeah. whatnot. Mm-hmm. And we had been in the room for about 30 to 40 minutes when the students decided instead of having these, you know, the investigators like voice questions or have them ask questions and then have an interpreter voice it, you know, for them so that the paranormal investigators could, you know, hear what they were asking, they decided to go strictly ASL. And before that, we didn't really have any activity. We're on the third floor. It's supposed to be like one of the areas with the most activity, um, you know, from the president, also from past presidents have stated that. So when we were on the third floor and the students decided, we'll just ask an ASL question, um, no English voicing, nothing, that's when the light actually um, came on. And at that point, like, you know, when it first came on, the students and I, like, around me, we were sort of laughing, like, what a great coincidence that it it came on like that. Um, And when we sort of calmed down, that same student was like, please turn off the light, and it immediately went out. And at that point, 
it didn't really matter if you did or didn't believe in a paranormal investigation. It sort of reiterated that's the point of our university, is that we are sign language-based, and there's no activity when it was just an English question, but when it was an ASL, that's when we got activity. Um, and I know some of the equipment actually reinforce sex. I know a flashlight's not really, um, you know, the great ghost seance or whatnot, but, um, you know, paranormal, Transcend Paranormal actually, you know, said that there was some equipment that went off, but sorry, I can't answer what it was. That that was a good answer. Um, Do you use any or reference any paranormal reality television in any of your courses? My students do because they're big fans. Um, So I can't say that I've ever watched. I've seen some ghost hunters here and there with my mother. Um, I don't follow it well enough to know the different names, but I do know that Zach is a name that comes up pretty frequently um, by one of my students. So (laughs) she is hearing and she's an interpreting student. So I won't say her name just for, you know, legal reasons, but um, (laughs) she will know who I'm talking about when I say she's sort of obsessed with him with zach huh from uh, from ghost adventures interesting mm-hmm. uh, um so how how do you see any of these courses uh or dark tourism as a whole evolving in the coming years well for me i just want to like one keep my life interesting and i like to learn so i'm sure there's another course that i'm going to start developing soon that's just kind of how i function um And, you know, I I look at it as, like, there's not that many faculty members, like, at Gallaudet who are really, like, looking at the weird, the paranormal, anything like, it's, you know, it's a college, so there's a lot of serious academics. Um, You know, my my focus has always been on, I always laugh and say kid lit, it's adolescent literature, so I'm sort of looked down upon anyway in the English kind of profession. Um, So, you know, I might as well have a good time. Um, The students love it, and again, if they're learning how to research, if they're learning how to analyze, you know, ethical issues, why does it matter what the topic is? To me, it doesn't, and uh, you know, you have um, probably a list of places you'd like to visit. Uh, they might be cemeteries. They might be haunted or reportedly haunted locations. What's at the top of the list? Well, I like to um, – so it's important to know that my husband does not love going into a cemetery. He's not really an outdoorsy kind of guy. Um, he will be all about the Star Trek show that you have coming up. Um, so he's a gamer inside. Um So once a year, I do take a vacation by myself, um, usually to either, you know, a haunted hotel or a cemetery. So I have Charleston on my list. Um, Last year, I went to Savannah again. I've gone to New Orleans several times. They're like my homes away from home in the cemetery world. But, yeah, I mean, I commute so much for work that I do like to keep it somewhat local. So Charleston's about five hours from here. So that's on my list next. That's a, that's a great city. If you um, had some advice for somebody who might say, you know, this, this stuff scares me, or maybe it just turns me off. You know, why should we be going into cemeteries? That's, you know, for people to rest eternally. I, how would you convince them otherwise? Or wouldn't you try? Well, I mean, 
mean, I, I would, you know, respect that. It's not for everyone, but I would explain that the history of cemeteries in the United States, you know, pretty much revolves around cu- people coming. Um, you know, we don't, like today, you don't ever have to go to a cemetery except for a funeral, and you can even skip that. But during the Victorian time, you went to, you know, that was what you did on the weekend. Um, you know, you went, you actually worked, like, you know, Monday through Saturday, and then on Sunday you could go to church, and then your recreation was to go to the cemetery. So I would explain, like, that's it was designed for people to come for recreation and leisure. You also had to attend the family plot, you know, take care of it. There wasn't, you know, large maintenance land, you know, you know, groundskeepers doing that back then. It was, you know, based on the family. So I talk about that, and I would talk about all the stories that um, you can learn in a cemetery. So not only the people who are interred there, but the people who did the artwork for the sculptures. Um, I mean, there's just so many connections, and that's why I love cemeteries, is that it's a way to remember maybe not my family members, but somebody's family members. We're basically out of time, Sharon. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I did have one more cemetery question for you, though. Have you ever visited the Evans City Cemetery? And if you know what that is, I'll know. I'll know the answer to the question. The Evans City Cemetery. I don't think I do. No. It's, all right. It's in Pennsylvania. It's the um, it's the cemetery that's the site of the uh, the beginning of the film Night of the Living Dead. It's where they filmed. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. No, I haven't been out there. My dad's from Pennsylvania, but we're like in the Wilkes-Barre, Scranton area. So, Oh, yeah. Where, um, where, where in that area are you from? Um, my dad is from Wilkes-Barre. Oh, right in Wilkes-Barre. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Lan- well, Lancaster, I think, is Lancaster is the little town outside of it. Sure. Familiar with that. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. It was a great discussion. Uh, I love the work that you're doing, and I wish you continued thank success, you. and hopefully you'll have a chance to come back some night. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.